1: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. 4.4 million more. One in six U.S. workers now asking for government help. Testing in Tokyo. Japan's business leaders demanding a game plan and human trial hope. Researchers in Oxford begin testing a vaccine. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for the next hour. There's lots to come on the show, including the latest, as you heard there, on UK vaccine research. And we've also got some coping mechanisms for dealing with isolation. I'll be bringing that all to you very shortly. But first, a snapshot, sadly, on the economic cost of saving lives with the shutdowns. Here in the United States, a further 4.4 million people filing for first-time benefits just in the past week. That brings the total number since mid-March to over 26 million people. I have to say, sadly, these numbers, I think, were expected and stocks pre-market, as you can see, reflect that fact too. Morgan Stanley believes the tidal wave of benefit claims will ease, but we're still talking millions more people for weeks to come. We're talking one in six workers in the United States at this moment. Meanwhile, in Europe, a broad survey of economic activity also hit record lows, suggesting the eurozone economy could be heading for a seven and a half percent growth drop in this quarter. That a stark assessment as EU leaders meet to discuss an action plan for the future. What does that look like? We'll be discussing Asian stocks. Meanwhile, finishing uh, as you can see, a little bit mixed overnight, broadly higher though. Once again, the data telling the story. South Korean growth falling by some 1.4% in Q1. That's the sharpest fall since 2008 activity. Meanwhile, in Japan's services sector, also plunging to its lowest reading on record. The key, of course, for all these nations is what and when does recovery look like and what support is still required from governments, from communities and from companies alike. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, the jobs... The fear gauge, I called it earlier on on CNN programming, it's the fear gauge of the US economy and the fear is that millions more will still
2: be in this level of uncertainty going forward. Yeah, I mean, one economist calling it a pandemic abyss and it's sucked yeah. in millions of American workers and businesses. The economist Chris Rupke pointing out that in February, uh, wages and salaries at, at all private uh, employers of the United States was eight, uh, eight trillion dollars. And uh, there's a feeling that the PPP is PPP peanuts in some economists view that it just can't cover all of these companies that are having to lay off the workers because you've had to lay off. You've you've had to lay off the American economy, essentially, here to fight uh, the pandemic. So just the scope of these numbers, uh, unimaginable five or six weeks ago that we'd be talking about this. Uh, The question now is, do these numbers animate a very careful uh, and scientific discussion about reopening the economy? Or do they cause uh, governors and mayors and politicians to try to open up too quickly because they're so afraid of these numbers? Yeah, fuel to the fire, I think, ahead of the
1: science here because you're facing loss of life, but you're also facing desperate impact on lives as we see these numbers continuing to stack up every week, Christine. It's, um, it's frightening. And, and you rose rose the, the correct point here, which is the PPP programme, the lending programme that's meant to save jobs. I think quietly you and I are also very concerned that this yeah. money doesn't get through, it doesn't get through quickly enough to save the jobs that, that it was intended to save.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at the level. I mean, there's there's probably going to politically have to be more stimulus, although you're hearing from Republicans that they want to they want to they want to look at how the money the bailout has been spent spent and see what works before they spend a lot more money. But again, go back to that eight trillion dollar figure from February. Um, That is this is a 20 trillion dollar economy. We look at these 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 jobs of the last five or six weeks. We're talking about almost 20 percent unemployment, the unemployment rate in the U.S. right now. This is we've lost more jobs than all of the Great Recession and a whole decade of jobs gains. Have been erased. So, you know, is it enough? What the Fed is doing it seems unlimited. Uh, Congress has had three or four versions of bailouts now. Is it enough and is it targeted to the right people? I mean, these numbers, the 26 million, all those people have bills to pay. Uh, they are nervous. There is anxiety. What will be the knock on effect uh, to the U.S. economy? And I will just say one thing. You, know, you can't just flip the light switch and we go back here. It's more like a dial. And consumers and employees really control that dial because uh, you don't want anybody to go back and have another wave of a pandemic. And then you're afraid to shop. You're afraid to go to work. You're afraid to go out. And then and then you really damage the economy long term.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen this from companies like Amazon, where they are on the front lines. They've got workers trying to fulfill our requests online and beyond of food and goods. And their workers are saying um, at times we're concerned about our protections. Try doing that nationwide and, of course, uh, globe-wide, quite frankly, because we've got this going on all around the world. And the global economy here is in, I think, dire straits is the message. Christine, You and I did the analysis right at the beginning. We said if you shut an economy like the U.S. down for a quarter of the year, three months, it's a quarter of that $22 trillion. We're talking double what Congress has agreed in terms of money just to fill the hole that's created. And I think we're coming back to that once again.
2: Bailouts are always messy and there are always mistakes that are made when they try to rush that money out the out the door. You know, I mean, the lessons we learned from 2008, 2009. But this is I mean, this this is a, an economy that is really, really struggling here. And, and how you see that is in the people who are struggling uh, behind it. So just kind of dangerous moment here.
1: Yeah. And the lack of backstops here. I think I look to the U.K. economy and promising to protect 80 percent of salaries where they can is um Perhaps a more direct way of
2: going about this. More people Challenging. are talking about it like that now, too. On both sides of the aisle are talking about maybe they should have just pay, paid paid the payrolls for 30 days. A yeah. national holiday, 30 days. Everything stays the same. Pay the payrolls. No nonsense with, with stimulus money and arguing and Christmas trees and the stimulus. Just protect the payrolls. And Be direct.
1: On. Yeah. Christine Ramos, thank you so much for that. To Europe now, where EU leaders are discussing their joint response to the pandemic. They will sign off on the first step. They 500 billion euro emergency package, but much more, as we've just been discussing there, needed to fund a recovery and what that looks like. And as always, the question is how to pay for it. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, I always felt during the financial crisis that more Europe was okay until it became about more money. And then the challenge really begins. What does a plan for the future look like?
3: I think there's nothing like an economic crisis to really highlight the divisions within within the EU, the financial crisis, as you mentioned. Really, we saw that the EU meeting today is to decide uh, on the recovery fund for the entire block. You mentioned the euro zone finance ministers meeting last week. They agreed to a sort of half a trillion euros worth in a big package. A, we're expecting it to be maybe triple the size and B, they didn't actually agree on how to finance the crucial recovery fund part of it. And this has been hugely contentious. We've spoken a lot about the corona bonds, the idea of mutualized debt that has caused divisions. Spain, the Southern European countries, France want to see this happen, the so-called corona bonds. Germany, the more frugal nations, they do not agree with that approach. They don't want to be underwriting the debts of economies which are less financially prudent, they would say, than themselves. So this brings into question this whole existential crisis, really, of the Eurozone and the EU. How do they move forwards? And when are we really going to see some decisive decisions being made? You know, is it at this EU summit? Probably not. Julia? Yeah, either we're in this together or we're not. (laughs) We'll see. Anna Stewart, thank you
1: so much for that. To Japan now, where the number of coronavirus cases has jumped to nearly 12 Thousand. That's according to John Hopkins University. About 300 people have died. This comes as some business leaders, including the head of Uniqlo owner Fast Retailing, criticizes the government's lack of coronavirus testing. Will Ripley is live in Tokyo for us. Will, great to have you with us. The last time you and I talked about this, it was... A declaration of emergency taking place in Japan, certainly in certain parts. And you were saying people weren't abiding by this. What's the feel now? How are people reacting and and what are they thinking as we see these cases
4: rise? Hey, Julia, the state of emergency is now in effect for all of Japan. And yet, in many parts of Japan, you wouldn't know it. People are still out leading their normal lives, even going into pachinko gambling parlors, which are smoky, close environments that tend to favor an older crowd. You have restaurants and bars that are still open, people who are packing parks, a lot of them not wearing masks, and people who are still taking public transportation because they have to go to work, because even though large Japanese corporations like Nissan and Toyota and Honda are encouraging employees to work from home, Eighty percent of Japanese companies aren't set up for it. So a lot of people really don't have a choice but to go into the office every day. And in the last month, Julia, we've seen the number of cases confirmed increase sevenfold here in Japan. And yet here in Tokyo, just two days ago, two or three days ago, they only tested 157 people in this entire city of 13 and a half million.
1: So we're seeing, and I mentioned it just then, business leaders are going, hang on a second, what is the plan here? I think everyone's watching what's going on elsewhere in the world and the battle over testing that's taking place. What is the plan, Will, from the government?
4: The problem is, is that the Japanese constitution, Julia, doesn't actually allow the government to force businesses to close. Their biggest recourse is naming offending businesses. And that's what some local governments are doing now, particularly in the case of those Pachinko gambling parlors. They're naming the businesses that are refusing to close. It doesn't mean that the state of emergency has a whole lot of teeth. It's just a request. And if businesses and civilians don't abide by that request, there's not a whole lot the government can technically do. At the same time, you have a sense of complacency because Japan has a relatively low number of official cases. They are trying to ramp up testing. We're starting to see things like drive-through testing and walk-through testing, but it's still very hard to get a test. I spoke with a, a, a man today who tried to get a test for his sick children, Julia, and it took 10 days. His kids were denied altogether. They turned out to be okay. He had to wait 10 days to get a coronavirus test. In the meantime, was told that he was free to ride the subway, go to work, do everything normal, and he chose to self-isolate because he was afraid he might infect other people. He did end up testing negative he still questions the result of that test because we know they're not always accurate. So it just goes to show there is confusion and not a lot of clear messaging coming from the government in, in, here in Japan.
1: Keep us updated. Well, it frightens me. I feel like other nations, we've been here before and we know what the result ends up being. Um, we'll replace. Stay safe for us, please. And for people there watching, stay safe. OK, England's chief medical officer and Scotland's first minister are warning social distancing measures will likely be in place in the UK at least until the end of the year. They say only a successful treatment or better yet, a vaccine could allow us to go back to normal. Meanwhile, the University of Oxford has announced its beginning human trials of a COVID-19 vaccine this Thursday. Clarissa Ward joins us from London with the details on that. Clarissa, and I have to say experts there saying uh, some degree of optimism about having some kind of vaccine at least available by the end of this year match that with a lot of scepticism elsewhere around the world. What do we know?
0: Well, Exactly, Julia. If you talk to the Oxford professors who are behind this study, they will tell you uh, with a certain degree of confidence that they believe they would have a vaccine ready potentially as early as September But if you talk to people who are studying this field very closely and in public health and vaccinology, they will say that that is wildly optimistic. Everyone seems to uh, share the broader consensus here, at least, that your average vaccine will take years, if not a decade or more to develop. And the reason for that is because usually any vaccine has to go through at least three waves of human trials. So you start on a small Group, You see if it's successful. You go to a larger group. You might want to sort of modulate or change slightly the dosage. You have to work out what level of antibodies you're trying to build up to fight the virus. You have to work out how long those antibodies will continue to fight the virus. You have to be sure, most importantly, that you wouldn't have a situation in which someone who's had the vaccine and then also becomes infected gets a sort of double dose uh, and sort of overdoses in a sense. So there's a lot of methodical research that needs to go into this, which is basically having everyone say, you know what, hold off. It's all well and good to say you think you're going to have something ready by September. In reality, it's probably likely 12 to 18 months. That said, 70 uh, coronavirus vaccines under development out there mm. in the world. Four of them uh, in human trials or three of them and sorry, a fourth, another British one from Imperial College London set to begin human trials in June. So there is a lot of activity out there, Julia. Everybody wants to get this vaccine, um, but it does take time.
1: Yeah, you raise a great point. There's a big difference between an experimental vaccine and being confident enough to to get it out there. But um, fingers crossed that with all this work going on around the world, we get somewhere quickly close award thank you so much for that in london there alright we're gonna take a break here on first move but coming up a former obama energy secretary tells me clean power could help fuel the economic recovery and later we look at coronavirus and the food supply how to keep production going while ensuring workers remain safe that's coming up Welcome back to First Move. Still looking like a higher open for U.S. stock markets this morning, despite yet another devastating read on U.S. jobless claims. The number of people filing now for first-time benefits rising by a further 4.4 million people last week. That's now, what, more than 26 million people over the last five weeks. Claims still at an alarmingly high levels, but they have leveled off. In the past three weeks, if we're looking for silver linings, it's not really uh, cutting it, quite frankly. In corporate news, meanwhile, Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse is beeping up its loan provisions by some $1 billion, a sign that it's bracing for a wave of defaults. U.S. retailing giant, meanwhile, Gap says it's running out of cash and the ability to access credit. It's suspending more than $100 million in rent payments in the hope that it can renegotiate terms. Meanwhile, in the oil markets, both Brent and U.S. crude are posting strong gains this morning. U.S. crude rising some 25 percent over the past two sessions after May's expiring futures contracts fell deep into negative territory. Those gains in oil also coming as the U.S. president and Iranian military leaders exchange verbal shots. John Defterios has more on this. Wow, John, if anything can... uh, Give the oil markets a little bit of a lift. It's the threat of a conflict of some degree, even if it's only verbal in the Middle East. What are we seeing and how important is this?
5: Uh, Well, it's about, yeah, it's about the only thing that can lift this market, Julia. It's a combination of gunboat and Twitter diplomacy. Uh, First, you had the tweet by uh, President Trump, and then a barrage coming back in response from the Iranians, the uh, mission to the United Nations for Iran, and then the Foreign Minister Javad Sarif, and as you noted here, the head of the Revolutionary Guard in Iran. It's drowning out all the noise uh, that we've had about the glut as of late, and a cynic would suggest it's even helping the U.S. producers and the Iranian producers as a result of the price rise. If you take a look at those prices again. Remember, Julie, we were talking with WTI at uh, $10 a barrel and Brent at $15 a barrel. We're looking at gains of 8 to 20% uh, on a single day. And we have to remind our viewers that uh, back in January, we had that spike up to $68 a barrel. That was after the killing of Qasem Soleimani of the Revolutionary Guard by the U.S. forces. Uh, and any time you have tensions around the Strait of Hormuz and the supertankers that are running through the Strait handling about a fifth of the world's supplies, uh, it gets very edgy on prices, and that's what we're seeing today. And I would say, also, there's a, a political dimension to this all, because the hardliners after that killing have taken over the parliament in Iran, and the language has gotten much tougher. And you have kind of a framework for clashing, Julia, and I mean by that is we have a, an election uh, in November, of course, with Donald Trump. He has to show that he's tough. We have elections for president in 2021. Hassan Rouhani cannot run again. And you can hear the voices coming out of Iran now because of the COVID virus as well. They want to kind of mark their territory in the Gulf. And it puts the major producers of this region, like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Kuwait, in a very difficult squeeze between the United States and Tehran.
1: Just another challenge in a very challenged sector. John Dovterius, thank you so much for that. Great to uh, have you with us. Let's talk more about what happens, particularly with jobs in this sector? We're joined by former U.S. Energy Secretary under President Obama, Ernest Moniz. He argues in an op-ed for The Hill that clean energy, in particular, is the sector that can help the U.S. economy bounce back. So fantastic to have you on the show with us. I just want to start and begin by what John was talking about there in terms of the impact that we're seeing, particularly on some of the smaller U.S. oil and gas producers. Do you believe that government support should be forthcoming, particularly for some of these smaller businesses are unprofitable and some of them have very high debt levels? Should they be bailed out in your mind?
6: Well, first of all, I think it is very important to emphasize what you did emphasize, namely that uh, the sector uh, was really having uh, challenges, uh, very high levels of indebtedness, very little cash flow uh, even before the virus. Uh, And now, of course, the demand destruction uh, with the virus has really precipitated uh, these uh, tremendously volatile prices. Now, uh, I think there are some things that the U.S. government is already doing um, uh, may not be uh, the savior for the entire sector. But, for example, uh, the Department of Energy right now uh, is running uh, a uh, an auction uh, with uh, with free space in the petroleum reserve. To help soak up barrels uh, out of the market mm. uh, without without being a cash a cash uh, transaction, so that th- that is going on. But if I may uh, emphasize uh, the theme uh, in our uh, in the op-ed, uh, it was that the uh, energy sector, uh, in its transition towards low carbon, uh, we're still at the very early stages of that. But in that transition, the data uh, tell us that the sector is a big driver of jobs, uh, job additions being roughly double uh, at the pace of the uh, economy as a whole uh, up up until the virus struck. So the argument is, whether it's the oil sector or or others, uh, that uh, investing now in the clean energy sector can be a double win in the sense of getting us to where the puck's going to be uh, with lower carbon uh, economy in the future but also in the very near term, using that as a very effective, highly leveraged job creator. And we will need job creation because, uh, in my view, it's extremely unlikely that, you know, every worker will just go, go back to the job that he or she had. We are going to need new job creation uh, as we come out of this uh, virus uh, economic hole.
1: I, I couldn't agree more with you. Is Is the job creation that you're talking about in clean energy because you were very specific there perhaps at the cost of some of the legacy the older businesses the dirtier in terms of climate businesses that we see today and is the incentive there when we come out of this in a weakened economic situation to push money and investment into cleaner energies or is the risk that actually we go in the opposite direction
6: well, clearly, historically, uh, when one has uh, very low oil prices uh, uh, and therefore very low gasoline prices, of course, that historically has led to more passenger miles traveled and the like. And I have to say, I think there's no reason to think that transportation demand will not come back. Uh, that is to make it positive. I think uh, I think demand will come back uh, after the lockdown is ended and uh, people are traveling again uh, more. But that doesn't change the fact that we are uh, in the still relatively early stages of a secular change uh, towards towards a low carbon economy. So in that context, with your with your question, uh, Julia, I'd say, first of all, there are across the board, uh, meaning in all of all of the sectors, uh, big opportunities for efficiency. And let me give you an example of how that feeds into the job leverage. Uh, Right now, we could. Uh, let's say, with the next stimulus package, for example, uh, really uh, pick up the pace dramatically on efficiency uh, 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 projects. Uh, And this is a big deal. You know, in the Obama administration, just the standards for efficiency put in place by the Department of Energy to 2030 would cumulatively save almost two and a half billion tons of CO2 emissions and save consumers over half a trillion dollars uh, in energy bills. So this is this is big leverage. So what do you do? Uh, we could, for example, use uh, existing utility programs uh, for energy efficiency to uh, to to use them uh, for residences, for uh, uh, business, small business, for uh, public buildings, and the latter two in particular, small business and public buildings, are sectors where You know, there are typically large parts of the day where there aren't many people involved. So even in the midst of our concerns about the uh, the virus, uh, you could imagine major opportunities for efficiency projects. It's more complicated in residences where obviously people are are living. But that's an example of the kind of program we could do going to the oil sector that you singled out here again. Now, now looking longer term. But we have pointed out in our analyses that there really is an enormous opportunity right now, this is not futuristic, Mm. to start building an industry built built around carbon dioxide capture and sequestration. And the Congress has, in a bipartisan way, passed uh, an important tax incentive for such projects that start before 2024, which is not that far away. Well, if you think about it, the kinds of jobs you would have in managing large volumes of carbon dioxide putting them underground and the like is very much the skill set of uh, those in the oil industry right now yeah, so you can see how it's, it's not so be much part either of an or. infrastructure
1: plan we feeling exactly. the benefits right now of cleaner air to the detriment of uh, other things of course trying to fight this health crisis but we are seeing what could be if we just invested invested correctly Um, I'm going to put you on the spot and end where we began, because I completely agree with your analysis. And I will tweet out your op-ed because I think it was great. If you were Energy Secretary today, given the pressures that the economy faces, the millions of jobless claims that we're seeing, would you be bailing out the shale industry?
6: Well, again, I think think the uh, demand... Uh, is going to come back. So uh, I, I don't think that the, the virus is going to be a long-term uh, 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 hit on, on, the, on the demand side. Uh, and therefore, it's a little bit harder to uh, understand uh, what interventions would be other than kind of the kinds of things I already mentioned, uh, like using the petroleum reserve, which has quite a bit of, of reserve capacity right now uh, to, uh, to do the kind of time swap Uh, that is, in fact, happening. Uh, So that's there. I think the the bigger issue uh, really is still uh, the secular change uh, in the uh, energy economy. uh, And uh, and of course, the sorting out in the industry that was an issue before the coronavirus uh, with, uh, frankly, the investors uh, saying it's time to get cash flow uh, as opposed to simply going for market share. And I think a lot of people Such have been stunned uh, by getting up to 13 million barrels a day.
1: Yeah, I, I, yes, couldn't agree more. So we will reconvene on this conversation, but we should harness this opportunity as painful as it is at this moment. Ernst Muniz there, founder of Energy Futures Initiative, so we shall reconvene. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. After the break coronavirus and food supplies. We're live at a meat processing plant where some workers say more could be done to protect them. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running this Thursday. As expected, we are higher, some six-tenths of a percent higher. Lots of important economic data out there, though for investors to keep an eye on. The number of people filing for first-time jobless benefits rising by a further 4.4 million people in the last week in the United States. Meanwhile, in the Eurozone, business activity plunging to its weakest level on record this past month. All this, of course, as European leaders gather to discuss their response. In the UK, too, manufacturing and services activity survey data falling to record lows this month too. The economic costs mount up. In the meantime, under mounting pressure too, America's largest meat producer is closing plants after employees were struck down with coronavirus. Tyson Foods is shutting its largest pork plant in Iowa and also suspending operations at a similar facility, facility, my apologies, in Indiana. It's adding to concerns about the vulnerability of the U.S. food supply chain and the safety of those keeping it going. At least 10 percent of the country's pork production is offline at this moment. According to its website, Tyson produces around a fifth of the beef, pork and chicken in the United States. Gary Tuchman joins us now and he's outside that shuttered plant in Iowa. Gary, great to have you on the show. This is a challenge for all those involved in the producing, in the grocery industry. How on earth do you protect your workers while protecting the country's food supply? It's a challenge.
7: Julia, it's just incredibly nerve-wracking for people who work in meatpacking plants in many parts of the United States right now. I can tell you here at the Tyson plant in Waterloo, Iowa, we have a situation where, as we speak right now, 182 of the people who work here have tested positive for coronavirus. The plant was shut down yesterday, but this is what's important to keep in mind. There are about 2,800 people who work here, and most of them haven't gotten tested yet. So there's no question that number will go much higher than 182, and that's why people are so scared and so nervous. The fact is, for days, and in some cases weeks, private citizens here in this area, in Black Hawk County, which is the northeastern part of Iowa, and people in the public world, like the mayor. The sheriff, state representatives, state senators, were calling on Tyson, the owner of this plant, this pork processing plant, where they process about 20,000 hogs a day, which is 4% of the U.S. pork production. They've been calling on Tyson and the governor of this state to shut the place down temporarily because sicknesses were starting to occur. Well, the governor made the decision not to order this plant closed. Tyson did not close the place. And more and more people were getting sick. And finally yesterday, Tyson said that we are closing our factory temporarily because of the combination of worker absenteeism, COVID-19 cases, and community concerns. And community concerns is an understatement because people have been screaming it for the rooftops for weeks. But once again, 182 people currently have it. And then there's another Tyson plant about 400 miles east of here in Logansport, Indiana. Tyson is also a pork processing plant. Tyson has announced it will be completely temporarily closed beginning this Saturday because that plant has 146 positive cases. Tyson will continue to pay the employees and will start tomorrow coronavirus testing for the employees. But we're going to keep a close eye on that because you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of people getting tests. And that number of people who have tested positive will undoubtedly get higher. Julia?
1: Yeah, I think you said it. Nerve-wracking, terrifying, actually, for the workers involved. Gary, thank you for bringing us uh, up to date with that story. Gary Tuckman there in Iowa. Now, General Mills is an international food giant closely monitoring their own supply chains. It has a global presence in the marketplace with operations, as you can see, in North and Latin America, Europe, Australia, and across Asia. We're talking 100 brands such as Cheerios, Haagen-Dazs and Pillsbury, being sold in more than 100 different countries. The company holding supply chain meetings now every day. John Church is in charge of those chains and he joins us now. John, you were just, I'm sure, listening to that and and understand the challenges here incredibly well, whether it's your 40,000 workers that you have around the world, I believe. How are you best protecting them? And just describe this challenge.
8: Uh, thank you, Julia. Good morning. Uh, you know, I did have a chance to listen to the last interview, and uh, luckily we've had a very different experience. Uh, we've we've been able, first of all, as you noted, we have plants in China, so we were able to learn quite early on what the best practices were. We were early adopters of social distancing in our manufacturing plants, changing uh, not only where people worked in the factory, but also where they took breaks, uh, allowing more space, literally remo- moving furniture, removing chairs so that uh, we reminded employees to uh, stay apart from one another. Uh, we were early adopters of uh, masks for employees. We're doing temperature screenings. Uh, and the safety of our employees and the safety of our food are have always been our number one priority. But at a time like this, it's incredibly important. We have a mission to serve the communities that uh, we make food for, and we take that very seriously.
1: Yeah, it's so important. What feedback have you had from your workers? Because to your point, you learned the lessons of China, and we've heard that from other big multinational companies that they could map across, but for others, mm-hmm. they're playing catch-up.
8: Well, uh, you know, our employees have been uh, remarkably with us, and I couldn't be prouder of the work they're doing. As, as you can imagine, with communities taking action to uh, lock down the restaurants, close schools, close businesses, have people work remotely, it's put a tremendous demand on uh, uh, at-home eating away from uh, and uh, less on away from home. That model has put a lot of pressure on our, on our manufacturing plants. We have plants uh, literally around the world running near capacity, and our employees are with us. We're, we're communicating very candidly. Uh, we're, uh, we're listening to their concerns. We're trying to understand what we can do. We're using the best practices from the CDC, and the WHO, and we're trying to learn from other industries as well. And so far, it's served us very well.
1: You and I mentioned there that you're having supply chain meetings now on a daily basis, and that's accelerated from from the past. Where are the areas regionally where you're perhaps most concerned? Because you have, as you mentioned, production facilities all over the world.
8: We We have not experienced any particular region because our best practices appear to be working. So it tends not to be a geography. The issue is more unanticipated demand that's greatly exceeding our capacity in uh, and, and China us. early on and we were some of the first plants to restart uh, we received we received demand signals that were two and three times our capacity uh, and some of our plants in the US our soup business is um, really doing it, it's remarkably well and we're seeing a lot of those occasions at home turn to soup our progressive soup brand as a uh, as a terrific alternative for people and it's just keeping up with that demand that's been more challenging hmm. and the reason we're having daily meetings is you know, as you might imagine, there's, there's breakdowns in things that are unanticipated all the time. The, the food industry is remarkably stable. It tends to follow the population. People aren't tending to eat more calories. But as these demand shifts have been so dramatic, we've had to really understand on a daily and sometimes hourly basis where our ingredients, how our manufacturing plants are, can we get the product to our customers? Now that's been an important focus for us, and it's required us to be much more agile than at a traditional time.
1: Yes, it's, you make a great point that it's about consumer demand and changing consumer demand that therefore gives you the supply issues because you have to obviously meet that. Talk to me about the money that you as a company have provided. And I know you're focusing on areas where you're worried about food security all around the world. Again, just explain the money that you've donated and how specifically you're targeting and where.
8: So uh, for us, and there's, there's a lot of ways to do good in the world. Uh, for us as a food company, it's clear where our best uh, opportunity is, and that's ensuring food security. Uh, the first thing we did is we donated uh, $5 million to food banks around the world simply to keep their operations running. They're having trouble getting volunteers in, as you might imagine. They're having trouble accessing food. Uh, interestingly, as the, as the demand for um, food from food banks goes up, uh, the supply is in short supply. Uh, Restaurants are a good source of food, and they're closed. Uh, retailers are selling everything they possibly could have. And so um, we're giving them, we've, we've really spread that money across the world to different food bank partners that we've had historically. In the U.S., we've partnered with Feeding America and their 200 food banks across the network. Uh, and in addition to the money we've provided them, and as a company, we donated $40 million worth of food in the last year. We are actually producing, we're, we're, we're making for donation. Uh, we're taking some of the demand shift that's existed, and it's freed up capacity on some of the uh, platforms we had that used to support restaurants and away-from-home eating. We've mm. repurposed those lines and really targeted making products that can serve the food shelf. And so we're making an additional five million dollars worth of product specifically for donation here in the United States uh, that, that our teams can make uh, that we're going to give away intentionally.
1: It's fantastic, John. Great to have you with us and stay safe, sir. And uh, thank you for what you and the company are doing. John Church, Chief Supply Officer at General Mills. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Up next, he survived a reality TV show, then cancer, and spent hundreds of days in isolation. Ethan Zone will be here to help us all with advice on how to survive lockdown. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The UK's top medical advisor has said social distancing could be in place until at least the end of this year. All around the world, people are facing the prospect of weeks, if not months, in lockdown and isolation. We're joined by someone who has a lot of experience of surviving under these kind of conditions. Our next guest spent 260 days in isolation fighting a rare form of cancer. He actually fought that twice, followed by years of social distancing following his treatment. Joining us now is Ethan Zone. He's winner of the U.S. TV show Survivor and also is a motivational speaker and founder of health charity Grassroot Soccer. Ethan, so great to have you on the show. Thank you uh, so much for making uh, time. Oh, boy, are you a survivor? We were just showing images there of of what you looked like when you were unwell and, and fighting cancer. Just describe what that kind of isolation is like. And it's, it's great to see you looking so well now.
9: <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Yes, you know, after the type of cancer that I got, went through, Part of the process is a bone marrow transplant, and part of that is you're in an isolated bubble for an extended period of time. And then once you're released from the hospital, you have to live an isolated lifestyle for about 100 days and, for me, years after that. And then I had to go through that twice. So the experience living in you know isolation is something I'm, I'm comfortable with right now.
1: What was that like just mentally? Because there will be people watching this. And they're thinking, you know, I've been through this now for four or five weeks and I'm literally going insane. And you were doing it day after day after day and you were unwell at the same time, too.
9: Yeah, I feel that one of the, the greatest things that I was able to do was is, is acceptance. And, you know, the first step to any change you can't control is acceptance. And when I, once I could accept the situation that I was in, I was able to plan and map out how I'd like to live the next phase of my life. And, you know, living in those tight quarters and in isolation, um, one of the, the best things that helped me in the middle of my crisis was leaning on the community and not only leaning on the community, but using my crisis to help others out there. And I really feel focusing on the plight of other human beings helps you heal. Um, and the one interesting thing about cancer is when you go through this, it's a very individual experience. No one knows what that experience is like unless you go through it yourself and it's different for each person. The silver lining that I can see in the situation the world is facing right now is we're all going through the same exact thing at the same time. And mm. nothing cool. creates comfort and confidence more than knowing you're not alone when facing a challenge in life. Um, so for me, being vulnerable and having the courage to reach out and ask others for help uh, was a huge thing for myself, as well as using the details of my life, my story, to help share and maybe help others who are going through a similar situation at that time. It's such a
1: great point. We've talked about this on the show before. It's physical distancing, not social distancing, because you need your community, your friends, your family at this moment more than ever, even if you can't see them. I want to talk about the future and what you've done, actually, to to help others. But just on a daily basis... What kind of structure did you give yourself during that time? Because I think that's something else that people watching will be struggling with as well. How do you feel that you fulfilled and did things on a daily basis when you're stuck at home?
9: Yeah, I'm a big list guy. And so for (laughs) me, I made a real structured format to my day. I would literally wake up and map out how I like to live my day. And then I would check them off each and every moment. And during a a day where you're feeling unproductive and maybe a little bit depressed and have some anxiety, uh, it's a good way to control something you can't control. And by the end of the day, I'd look back and I'd say, oh, I actually did X, Y, Z, you know, all these things. So emotionally and mentally, it made me feel a little bit more productive and good about myself going through a full day in isolation. You know, that included workout goals, you know, ec- exercise goals, work goals, creativity goals. Um, so all these things, I would like to achieve these little mini goals throughout the day. And by the end of the day, it was just a, a better feeling than if I was just sitting around on the couch, like stressing about what I could be doing or should be doing. Take action.
1: Focus on something else and take action. Talking of taking action, talk about grassroots soccer, because I know this is about using football, as I would call it, to um, yeah. to mobilize at risks. At risk young people in uh, developing countries as well, which is pretty incredible, too.
9: Thank you. You know, before my time playing the television show Survivor, uh, mm. I played professional soccer in Zimbabwe and kind of witnessed what was happening with HIV and AIDS and how it was just destroying this community that I was now a part of. And thanks to my time on the show and winning a, a big prize and having a platform. I was able to meet up with some of my soccer buddies to create grassroots soccer, and we're an adolescent health organization that's using the power of soccer to educate, inspire, and mobilize young people in communities on making healthier choices in life. And we're currently operating in 60 countries, and we've graduated 2.7 million kids from the program to date.
1: That is incredible.
9: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Astonishing. Yeah. Thank you for that. And um, I, I should point out as well, in the United States, you're actually on TV in the moment in the latest series of Survivor. Am I allowed to ask if you win? You're probably not allowed to tell me. You are
9: allowed to ask if I win. I can't tell you the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, yes, yeah, season 40 Survivor. <laughs> Um, They asked back 20 of the most popular winners of all time to compete for not one, but two million dollars. So it's really exciting. And it's a it's a a little bit of a distraction from the reality of the situation we're all going through right now. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for your advice and thank you for your efforts to give back as well. That's a lot of children helped. Ethan Zone, the survival winner, motivational speaker and edge of extinction, extinction contestant. Thank you very much and stay safe. And as I say, great to see you looking so well. All right, coming up, on first move, a common sound around the world. Applause for our health workers. After the break, another group of health workers get a pretty special send-off. Stay with us. Welcome back. I leave you in this show with a moment captured here in New York. It's a touching tribute to healthcare workers from those also used to responding to crises. Watch this. This is New York police officers applauding medical workers who came from other places around the country simply to help out New York City, many of these people, these heroes have been here for weeks. Some today were just starting their final shifts. So the NYPD gave them a memorable send off thanking them for their work. And we thank them too. And of course, our police officers and our healthcare heroes all around the world keeping us safe. That's it for the show. Zane Asher will be with you tomorrow. I'll be back with you on Monday. So just so you know, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you very soon.
6: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance.
4: Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.